Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are here continuing our Winging It series on the life of Martin Luther. Um, If you've been listening along, uh, thank you, first of all. We are a part of the 1517 uh, Legacy Project. Uh, Lots of podcasts and publishing and blogs and stuff like that. Mike's had and two blogs lately. He's on a roll. Yeah, I got another one coming, I think. Um, or maybe you know how many two. I've had lately? Zero. Zero. I got to um, get back on that horse. So if you have been listening, um, we are part of that uh, that whole um, podcasting, uh, podcasting network. network. It's been great for us. And what we like to do is we like to have regular episodes, but then we like to have these little winging it's. And so if you've been with us from the beginning, you know what we're doing. We're slowly going through the life of Luther. If you've just picked up in this one, that's great. If you want to go back, we started right at the beginning. I mean, literally his birth. Even before that, we kind of had a preliminary episode. And so I don't know. We're in the mid-20s right now. So we are definitely going slow. And we think each wing unit uh, has its uh, standalone value as well, Um, especially if you already kind of know some of the Lutheran history. You can kind of come in and out where you want. But today um, we are going to get to his escape from the city of Worms and then he eventually makes it to the Wartburg Castle where he's going to sort of hide out for about 10 months under the pseudonym of Junker George. And so maybe just if you don't mind, Wade, I'll just kind of give a little bit of background of of Worms. He has gone there to this imperial diet. This is a meeting of the the empire, the Holy Roman Empire. A lot of business is going on. Um, The issue of Martin Luther and uh, the dividing of the, uh, let's say, the, the religious scene of Germany between Uh, followers of Luther and those who have remained loyal to the Roman Catholic Church is an issue, but it's only one issue. A lot of information, a lot of business that uh, is going on. Um, Luther takes his stand. He is asked to recant. Um, He eventually says no, and there's going to be um, an edict of Worms that is going to be issued, which is going to declare Martin Luther an outlaw. He's already really been excommunicated, but he's going to be an outlaw, which kind of means dead or alive. However, it's not always that dramatic because there is a lot of politics going on. In fact, um, we're going to find out that the emperor does give Luther uh, the go-ahead to leave and safe passage. He waits a while before he issues the edict, and uh, it's kind of curious for us why he does that. But if we know the political scene, we can understand why Charles V, who is the emperor at this time, he needs... um, he needs German background. He are our, our backing, uh, not just politically, but militarily. And Luther's protector, let's say his elector, um, who becomes his protector, uh, Frederick the Wise, who is the elector of Saxony, where Luther lives and works. Um, Charles V owes him a lot. Um, Charles V is largely the emperor um, because Frederick. Um, he was one of the votes that voted him in. Um, he passed over being um, uh, nominated, it's not the right word, but elected as emperor himself. There's a lot of politics going on here. It's not just Roman Catholic versus uh, the followers of Luther. That's only part of the story. I remember, he might have actually kind of been elected for a little while. In fact, Frederick, I, I think there was a brief period where they where he may have been the man. I'd have to think back to our winging it session on Frederick, but there was some close calls there. Right, and he, I mean, he could probably could have, if he played his card rights, cards right, would have become uh, 
um, the elector. So Luther um, says, here I stand. Um, the uh, emperor um, and the nuncio Aleander say, uh, no, we have, to, we have to stand our ground. Um, there is um, a little bit of a, I don't know, not a second chance for Luther, but maybe a rethinking. I think there's some, perhaps some, let's put the best spin on it, some uh, wisdom here from Charles V. Let's say, let's one last, one last effort to try to get um, Luther back into the fold uh, through political back channels and some of the electors meet. Um, and it's realized that this is not going to happen, and so the edict is going to have to be issued. And uh, But I believe Luther, uh, 21 days sticks in my mind that he was given kind of 21 days before the edict, safe passage for the edict was going to be issued. Um, and he is able to uh, escape out of Worms. And the idea that he came out, you know, with fire behind him and he's running for his life as the, as the, uh, the emperor and his army is coming after him as if it was Pharaoh and the uh, Israelites is not really the case. In fact, he has an imperial guard there for a while, I think, giving him safe mm -hmm. passage. Um, he's going to these towns, not leisurely, but he's not traveling uh, nonstop. He preaches publicly at Eisenach, for sure. I want to say there was another place where certainly everybody knew what he was doing. He's writing back and forth. Uh, letters are going back and forth during this travel. But then we get to this uh, kind of Hollywood scene, and maybe you want to tell that story, Wade, where he is sort of quote-unquote kidnapped and taken to the Wartburg. Sure, so Luther is on his way back, and it, I mean, it sure seems that he knew something like this might be coming. Um, he had had a few companions on the way back, and I believe by the time this event happens, it's basically him and uh, Nicholas Amsdorf, <clears throat> who was a longtime friend. Uh, at least I'm pretty sure it was Amstorf who was traveling with him. I just taught on this, so I should be remembering this, but uh been a long day. Um, and uh, they are basically um, ambushed, I guess we would say, um, but by friends, and he is going to be kidnapped. Uh, he, Like I said, I I think he knew this was coming in some form. Uh, he's going to be taken to the Vortberg, which was a uh, meant to be kind of a residence for nobility, but also... It clearly is a fortress if you've ever been to Eisenach or you go there. Um, it's a big castle on a hill. It's meant to be secure. Um, but as Mike mentioned earlier, he's going to have a new identity while he's there. He's going to grow his beard out, which is interesting in and of itself because you look at a lot of the Lutheran reformers or even the Protestant reformers, and they usually have these big splendid beards. And one of the reasons for that was um, shaving was a sign of clerical celibacy. Um, you'll still notice today um, a difference between um, Roman Catholic priests and Eastern Orthodox priests is oftentimes the Eastern Orthodox priests are bearded and the Roman Catholic priests are not. Uh, and so a lot of the early Lutherans grew these kind of fantastic beards as kind of a way of saying, hey, um, we believe in the in the marriage of, of pastors or priests. And uh, he's going to grow his beard out. He's going to be Knight George. Um, he's going to be supposed to go on some hunting expeditions. He goes on at least one where I know he talks about he kind of sees a rabbit and he feels bad for it and <laughs> it's just really not his thing but he for the first time in a long time um, he's going to find himself cut off from a, he's be alone. a circle of yeah. friends yeah whether it was in the monastery or at the university he'd always been surrounded by brothers or colleagues um, people that he could talk with and, and Luther was someone who could sometimes suffer with depression and be withdrawn but he definitely was someone who relied on friends, um, 
needed friends, liked conversation and some good beer. And that in and of itself will make this a difficult period. It's not that there's no one else at the Vortberg, um, but he's not going to have the companionship like he's had at other times in his life. Uh, he's, he's taken there. He's kind of stashed away. This allows Frederick the Wise, um, you know, some plausible deniability when he's asked, are you harboring Luther? Where is Luther? He can say, I don't know. Did he have completely no idea? Um, I have a hard time believing that, but he, he might have for all we know, um, at least at first. <clears throat> as far as location, I mean, he could have said, don't tell me where Luther mm-hmm. is. And uh, Luther is really not going to like his time there. He calls it the land of the birds. Um, you it's know, he Patmos. looks out and he sees trees and birds. Yeah, it's Patmos, like uh, the Apostle John uh, was exiled um, to the island of Patmos, um, as we see in the book of Revelation. And, you know, he doesn't have very good Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> he's not getting LTE for cell data. Forgot his PlayStation. And so he's going to eventually decide um, to do some work that he has either intended to do or has been requested of him. And two of the big things that will come out of this is, first, um, Frederick, his prince, is going to request some postilla, some sermon books, um, both to be examples of sermons, what is a, a good sermon look like, uh, Fred, then, Frederick loved devotional material. Right. And there, there was a desire for that kind of stuff, yeah. Yep, so there's a personal interest. Um, but then also to be in some of these parishes where it's recognized, you have priests who have been very ill-equipped, um, who, knew, who now, whether by conviction or not, are Protestant clergy. Um, it's an anachronistic term at this point because there's not Protestants yet. Um, but to be, if they if they don't have anything good to preach, they can just read these sermons at least. He's not going to finish the Pastilla while he's at Wittenberg, but um, Frederick is going to follow up in Spalatin about wanting these done. And then the next big project, um, something that had been on his mind for a while, was to put the New Testament at least, eventually the whole scriptures, but the New Testament into the language of the people, which in this case would have been German. Now, we sometimes view the Luther Bible as being Luther's translation, um, and that's probably not completely fair because his colleagues do have a lot of input especially the Old Testament is a joint effort. But even the new, what Luther's going to do um, at the Vortberg is basically come up with a rough draft of the New Testament into German. When he'll get back to Wittenberg, he's going to pick Melanchthon's brains. Um, he's going to have help with the Greek. Um, there's places we know he struggled with the Greek where he says this in letters, you know, this was um, hard going or difficult. But this is going to be the primary um, development to come out of Wartburg will be the translation of this New Testament into German, which means if you're translating, uh, you're immersed in the scriptures as part of that work. And so he's really going to be um, immersed in the New Testament for a protracted fashion and, and in a, a task translating where you're really trying to make the New Testament preach or speak uh, in a way that the average person is going to be able to understand um, while he's there, uh, there's going to be, you know, rumors swirling about what's going on with him. Uh, you know, people, rumors about him. Uh, there's going to be a deep concern he has for Wittenberg. Um, he's going to often ask for news from Wittenberg um, as Wittenberg's kind of lost its big personality. It still has a lot of very capable theological minds, but... Um, Bit of a vacuum Yeah, Karlstadt and Melanchthon are going to have to kind of fill the void. And um, Melanchthon's not really perfectly suited for it by temperament, and Karlstadt's not very well suited for it by theology. 
um, in that, although Karlstadt and Luther, you might remember from the winging it session on the Leipzig debate, are on the same page, or at least it seems, the what they mean by reform and where they see that going is starting to clearly become divergent. Um, Karlstadt is going to start to read the New Testament a lot more as prescriptive on things, where Luther would see it being descriptive. Um, Karlstadt is going to turn to the Old Testament a lot more than Luther would for ecclesiastical practice. Um, and so we'll have some problem on the home front, and maybe I'll let you go into that in just a moment, Mike. But I think a, a big thing for us to keep in mind, as I've stated, though, is this is just big for Luther because this is going to be the most alone he is probably uh, in his adult life, maybe in his whole life. Um, we have to remember Luther spends uh, late adolescence on at boarding schools with friends, um, in a monastery with fellow brothers, um, in a university with friends. And he really is uh, isolated and I would say, you know, somewhat lost, um, if not spiritually, um, you know, definitely mentally and socially uh, in his time there. Yeah, not just, uh, you know, oh, he he's alone, like he doesn't have any friends, but you got to imagine that Already, he is bombarded constantly with letters, constantly with questions, constantly with requests to preach and do this kind of stuff. And so just a time thing that he goes from going 100 miles per hour all the time um, with big dramatic things like the Diet of Worms, like Augsburg, um, being the center of attention, quite frankly, and all of a sudden he is away. And I think we can kind of understand that where... Um, you know, we maybe complain everything is so busy and stuff like that, and then we go away and we can't settle down, right? We, we need to have that. Uh, I worry about you and I retiring like we're going to die after two years, you know? Like, there's what are we going to do? That kind of thing. Let me just let, go back to just the idea of him being stowed away up here. Uh, there's the plausible deniability, as you mentioned, with, with Frederick. So he knows what's going on, but he doesn't know the details, perhaps. Um, uh, he is put away and it's really a, a good secret. I mean, I think very early on, everybody knows he's still alive and he's, he's stashed away somewhere. And so you can count like probably, you know, on your hands and your feet, which castle is he at kind of thing. Um, but even, uh, the early biographer, Roman Catholic biographer of Martin Luther, who was fairly polemical against, uh, uh Lutheranism or what would become Lutheranism makes a guess and he guesses wrong. So it was a very good secret that uh, he was at the Wartburg and uh, he really was, this was, this was thought out. Um, this was clandestine. It was um, on the road where he, um, it was just him and his driver, I believe, maybe one more person. And uh, the, the quote unquote kidnappers are, are disguised and they say, do you have Luther? And the driver rats him out and then they drag Luther away running, you know, and then when they're away and they, you know, nobody can track them, um, they slow down and say, put Luther on a horse and reveal who they are. And they take him there and he's not really allowed to see too many people until he grows out his hair. And then you know what came on? Hmm. The, uh, that song, uh, what's the song that was big this summer? The, 
Old Time Road or whatever <laughs> that came on, and he uh, he rode on his horse. Like if if we would have a movie of Luther, we would use that That'd as the soundtrack. That'd be a good one to use yeah. on, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he's got to grow not just a beard, but he's got to fill in his tonsure, kind of the hole in the top of his head, um, so that he actually looks like a lower nobility type of person. And so it, it is a good. A secret he can't help himself but get news and and write letters and stuff like that and and probably next episode is when we'll we'll get a little bit more in depth of he does leave and then comes back and maybe just a couple words about the the Vartburg. you know if you go to the you go to this castle you'll be surprised that it's not all luther this is actually right. kind of a famous one elizabeth of thuringia who was uh, from hungary i believe uh, a famous saint um, important for kind of the formation of the German nation yeah. in the 19th century. And um, she... Uh, you I know, mean, not Elizabeth, but the Vorper. Yeah, her her, uh, her husband, back to Elizabeth, her husband uh, passes away and she's kind of, she was a noble, a noble woman and she was, her and her family are kind of kicked out of the, the court and then she kind of gives her life up to uh, celibacy but also to um, uh, helping out the sick and so you'll still see, I think, Maybe not so much America, but hospitals and stuff named uh, Elizabeth, I believe. She kind of had that, that thing going. And I have a student in my history of Christianity that has chosen her for her paper. So I'm interested to see what she can find out about that. Um, yeah, later on after Luther, it is an important place. It's a, you know, it's a story. So if you go there, this is, this is famous outside of Martin Luther as well. And so people would have known this. This is kind of a, an important, uh, important uh, part of German history. And, and if, if you go there, by the way, don't do the English tour. Um, I've been there a number of times, and the English tour, they don't tell you near as much, and you don't. So it's not as good a tour. Do the German tour, and then after the tour starts, let them know you don't speak German, and uh, they'll uh, they'll switch to English, <laughs> or uh, you'll find a nice German person who will translate for you, and you'll actually get a lot more material because I think they just assume. English speakers aren't going to be interested in a lot of the history, right. but uh, you, you'll get a better tour. Trust me. Yeah, it's a cool place to go. I mean, it's it's one of those bucket list things I think for a lot of people. So um, he's out there. Uh, I like that hunting story where he, you know, they know that he's. This is not his personality to stay uh, cloistered away, and so they're going to take him out on a hunting trip. And he's like, "Well, we got a couple things. Whatever." All I could think about was theology and. Uh, didn't really do it for him right so you get a little insight into his personality there maybe uh wait if you want uh maybe talk about just the power of luther's translation of the bible uh into the vernacular certainly this is not the first or the only translation into uh german but what was what was so significant about Luther's translation going forward for the German language and theologically that people would have access to a German translation that was accessible? Sure. And just to pick up a little bit, Mike, you had mentioned about him being hidden there. There's a kind of cool story of um, John Frederick. So Frederick the Wise's brother, who will become elector and prince after Frederick the Wise, uh, happens to be visiting the Vortberg and he gets there and he's kind of like, Wait, I know this guy. I know this Junker Jorg. Um, and he himself finds out Luther is there. So it was clearly a, a well-kept secret. Um, Luther's translation is not the first translation into German. Um, it's the first good one um, into German. There have been other attempts. Uh, there's a couple reasons. First, the, the German wasn't usually very good in the translations that were done. Um, it was fairly wooden. Um, the, 
German was not very standardized at this time, so it, it didn't travel as well um, across regions in Germany. But another big reason was most of those translations had not had a very good textual basis for what they were using for the Greek. Um, and Luther, the timing just happened to be right, is able to use Erasmus, um, Greek New Testament. Erasmus had produced a critical edition of the Greek New Testament, I believe in 1516. And so Luther is able to use that. Now, it's not that Luther is not using the Latin either. He's um, clearly consulting the Latin as he translates. And there's times you can see it heavily influenced him. Um, but he's going to be working in the Greek and in Greek that uh, a publication that is kind of the early stages of what we think of as, um, you know, looking at text and asking what's the best manuscript or what's the best reading. This is not the USB or Nestle Allen for those of you who use modern critical editions of the Greek New Testament. And critical edition, by the way, doesn't mean like it's critical of the mm -hmm. Bible. It means it's saying um, these manuscripts have uh, different readings in places, none of them that ever really affect doctrine, but for instance, a word missing or a word added. Um, and so he has this and he's able to uh, to use it, um, as well as to compare it to other Latin translations. And this becomes then um, one that helps standardize German. I mean, it's not an understatement to say that Luther's German New Testament uh, did more for the German language than pretty much anything else at that time. So you can imagine all of these kind of little dialects and like you said, it doesn't travel. Some things don't travel well between north and south, and even in within little uh, territories. You need to have something that would um, consolidate some of this and bring the language together. Uh, usage of different language, and what else could that be? I suppose you could say some kind of legal technal language, but that would be just only for the elite, and you probably did that in Latin anyway. Um, but for the common people, um, the Bible being accessible, being an important book. Um, I, I don't know if, what, what would be a comparison today, maybe television, you know, that kind of thing where th there is a chance for all of these little dialects to share something, right? Yeah. And I think um, in many ways, it's more Luther's work helps cross those boundaries then Luther is, you know, an expert in the German of these different regions. He hadn't been to many, but he writes in a way. And part of the way that he writes that helps to do this is he consciously is trying to write um, in a German that would have been spoken by the people. And as you said, not just by the elites, but by the common people. So to put the scriptures in terms, quite literally, um, that common people would have employed in their daily life. Um, and that really helps to... Um, bridge gaps so that the, the German Bible is able to, um, you know, be read and understood throughout Germany, but also uh, in other countries where people had a familiarity with German. So it, the, the, this does not only influence German translations of the Bible. Uh, Luther's translation of the Bible will influence translations of the Bible into various vernacular languages. Um, even the King James in many places, um, you can see clearly owes a debt uh, to the Luther Bible. And so it's a, maybe we could say somewhat colloquial German. Um, it's, it's meant to be something that rings in the ear. And keep in mind, most people are still going to come into contact with this Bible by hearing it. Um, this is not an extremely literate society, although it's uh, growing in literacy. Um, you might have a neighbor who is able to afford this Bible, or New Testament, I should be saying, 
um, who then people gather in that household and it's read aloud. And so Luther recognizes most people con- people's contact with the word is still going to be uh, through the ear. There's something to that. St. Paul says faith comes through hearing. And so he really does a good job of, of trying to do that as he translates. <clears throat> Once again, though, this is a rough draft that he's producing at the Vortburg. It's not like it's just sent off to the presses. Um, Melanchthon will really help him polish it uh, so far as faithfulness to the Greek as well. Yeah, was an interesting thing that popped uh, that you said that uh, kind of triggered something in my mind a little bit off topic. But um, when we say, oh, those people are illiterate, we could say, oh, they're uneducated and, and dumb. Well, in mo- a lot of cases, yeah, they didn't have access to the education we have too. But there was something kind of, I, correct me if I'm wrong, in, in some medieval um, periods, where maybe even the elite didn't know how to write um, because that was, you had scribes to do that. That was almost something beneath them. And so to hear something and I suppose to read um, was a little bit, we think that we think that is something that everybody has access to and wants to have access to, but that's not necessarily always the case, right? That to have something read out loud in some cases may be better and was seen as just as educated as being able to put pen to paper and stuff like that. So there's a little bit of a nuance there. Maybe I ask you this question. He starts off with, uh, I believe, the Magnificat. And his uh, um, sermons that he's writing, his devotional material, if I believe, started with Advent and Christmas. And so I wonder if there was a connection there that he had. He was thinking about this and and how he, you know, sometimes we think, oh, you know, that Luther got rid of Mary for, you know, the, for the Lutheran church, but he was actually quite thoughtful about, uh, the mother of Jesus and the Magnificat was very important to him. I wonder if the, the Vulgate there, the Magnificat that, um, we still use that, that Latin phrase there, the magnifying of, of my soul. Uh, um, he was influenced by the Latin there, but anyway, any thoughts on the idea of the Magnificat being something that he he really really grabbed onto. Yeah, I I can't say f- for sure um, from my knowledge where he begins the translating task with, but Magnificat definitely is something that throughout his life is a very important text. Um, he goes back to it again and again. Um, he calls it one of the you know best sermons or hymns that the church has, and I think it does relay to him you know what he wants his his scriptures to do he want his translation of them to do he wants them to preach and sing mm-hmm. and so for instance the magnificat should sing in german mm-hmm. right it should be something that the people are able to sing and understand and i think there is uh you know something to that when when you encounter the scriptures uh you know one of the things you quickly realize is each author has their own method and approach and uh there's a reason we talk about koine greek and not classical greek they're using the Greek of the day and how people would have uh, spoke to each other. I, I don't want to go back to Mark's gospel too much because I don't want to toot my own horn, but this is something when I was writing A Path Strewn with Sinners that always struck me as, you know, even Mark's gospel, you read it, and it's a guy, it's like my grandpa telling fishing stories. And I think uh, that, you know, working with the, the songs, the canticles, would have been something that would have been uh, influential uh, for him. And, I mean, at the end of the day, too, Luther just could never get around being a preacher, right? This is um, the text for him of the scriptures was not a static thing like we maybe think of written texts often being. 
Um, it's something that he really thought had life and did something. And so you'll read um, some of his letters about, you know, he's agonizing over what's the best way to translate this jewel or rock mm-hmm. um, in a way that with a concept that would be a similar thing um, that the average German might have experience with. And I think the Magnificat would make a sense as a starting point, uh, especially as a song. But, um, I mean, just given the nature of the text. too. But, yeah, he's that's an important text for him uh, throughout his life. And he sees it a, a thorough you know, in it, a thoroughgoing, you know, evangelical uh, tone. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, the quotes from that Mary uses from the old Testament there, that uh, kind of the great reversal kind yep. of language that I am nothing um, and made something because, and, and the, and the humbling and lifting up with the theology of the cross and the implication is the, the righteousness of Christ. Right. And uh, it was just mentioning this to my uh, students and I can't remember what class, but God, the first will be last and the last will be first. And so God has to make you last first <laughs> so that he can make you first. Right. Uh, um, so there, there's some law gospel there as well. So Luther's in the Wartburg, um, not for very long, but it's really is remarkable, even though it was a quick run through of the New Testament, how much he is able to to get done. Um, you know, imagine what you could uh uh, attain weight if you put down your phone and you didn't have all the distractions of softball and stuff we put you in yeah. a if we put you in a a castle somewhere you know well and i think we want to remember too that as he's isolated um this is a time in his life where he really doesn't know what the future hold holds or what his situation is uh, he will eventually return to wittenberg but it's not certain um at this point that he'll be able to return and uh you know what is what is life as an outlaw mean after this he doesn't have regular contact with the court he doesn't have regular contact with the faculty um everything is mediated at this point and uh and so it is a a time of uncertainty in which he throws himself into i mean these two projects the the text of the new testament um but also into writing sermons um and and i think these two things will really define the rest of his ministry um, as he will spend the rest of his ministry lecturing on and writing commentaries on the scriptures, um, but then also preaching, preaching, preaching. Yeah, I think maybe another uh, you know silver lining to him being put away. I don't know if I can make a big deal about this, but you know he's going to start being. He's already been published, but he's really going to start getting being published, and he's going to take a hand in this, right? On and just maybe the practices practice of constantly writing right and translating and thinking about the text i think serves him well um, because he's going to write nonstop pretty much for the rest of his life and so to have some time to think about stuff and put his thoughts down on paper um, will be a benefit for him when he's going to be writing very quickly right uh, getting things out he's never going to have really a quiet time again um, and so I, I think this was a huge uh, a huge benefit for uh, for his scholarship too, going forward. I mean, I don't know if I have evidence of that, but I think we can speculate that that would be something that God used to uh, make him more thoughtful of a writer and a thinker going uh, forward. No, and I, th- I think even to understand the scriptures, uh, to translate them, um, makes you both a better reader and writer. I mean, that translating task is is not easy, um, and I think you're exactly right. He's never going to be isolated like this again. He's going to be thrown into the mix of things. The only Comparative time might be his time in the Coburg uh, when the yeah, true, Augsburg true. Confession is being written, but even then, it's a different circumstance. Yeah. Um, it's it's not 
uh, nearly the same. And and he's uh, getting his writing there is letter after letter after letter and it's after letter being yeah. transported pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so I think you know that's a, a good thing to keep in mind. Is this is kind of the the only sabbatical Luther's ever really going to get. So uh, speaking of kind of being crazy and being isolated from that, I think he probably is, uh, has a growing weary, uh, worrisome attitude towards what's going on in uh, Wittenberg without his leadership there. Um, and things are going to get a little bit dicey there. He's going to leave twice, I believe first kind of sneaks in a little yeah, bit and, and second then, to return second uh two and then he's going to speak a, a series of of sermons too and i think we're going to leave that for our, our next episode but i will say though if uh our listeners can let us know if we fail to do this um but my suggestion would be if next time we take maybe first um what's going on in wittenberg karlstadt and the zwickau prophets and maybe mm-hmm. he's willing at first and use that as a springboard into like this growing radical reformation mm-hmm. enthusiasm or schwermerei um and uh you know this um flesh versus spirit type thing mm-hmm. and then um whether in the same session or the next one do a more strict overview of kind of the path to the invocavit sermons but i think it would be a, a good time for us to give a sense of because the zwickau prophets mm-hmm. will come of like this na- what nation nation however you say it um, Anabaptism mm-hmm. um, and other things that are starting to grow. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So maybe we'll, we'll jump around chronologically a little bit there, but I, I think otherwise we'd probably repeat ourselves when we describe Karl Stott. Not that they're the same exact, he's the same exact as Zvikal prophets, but we probably would repeat ourselves wide. Yeah. So I think that's a good idea. So um, we're probably just about time for our winging it here. So um, unless you got anything else. Um, no, I think. Uh, if we forget to do that, to follow that format. <laughs> It'll um, be too late by the yeah, time you and get you there. You can <laughs> remind us, but know that we were just uh, letting the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down. My party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up another round. I set him up another round.